The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your favorite, I know it, climate focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and Today, I want to give a little shout out to our trusty producer, Price Atkinson. You'll hear his voice in our wrap up, but he does so much more than that. The show wouldn't be possible without his expertise, his support. I do adore him, and I look forward to our recordings every week for some one-on-one time from afar chatting with him. And if you appreciate Price too, maybe hop on Apple Podcasts and throw us a five-star review. It will make his day. It will make my day. This week's guest is the brains behind climate myth-busting endeavors like Skeptical Science and Cranky Uncle. John Cook is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Climate Change Communication Research Hub at Monash University. He obtained his PhD at the University of Western Australia, studying the cognitive psychology of climate science denial. His research focuses understanding and countering misinformation about climate change. In 2007, he founded Skeptical Science, which if you haven't found that out, I definitely encourage you to look it up. More recently, he authored the book Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change, which combines climate science, critical thinking, and cartoons to explain and counter climate misinformation. I hope you'll check out both Cranky Uncle and Skeptical Science, but before you do, have a listen to my conversation with John Cook. Welcome back, listeners. Coming at you from Australia, where it's a half a day ahead, I guess would you say, is John Cook. Thank you so much for joining us today in your morning, our evening. Thanks, Chelsea. You're coming to you from the future in Australia. I love that. So what happens tomorrow? Well, there's no COVID over here, so I guess that means the future's bright. Yes. <laughs> I'm one week after my second vaccination, so I'm just at that brink of being able to say I'm fully vaxxed. I'm so excited. Uh, yeah, that's the one downside of being in Australia. Our vaccine's uh, being distributed way, way slower than in the U.S., Well, it's interesting. I know we didn't get you on here to talk about vaccines, but I did hear as I was driving my son to baseball practice about an hour ago that on NPR, they said about 50% of Americans have had at least one shot and the, but the rate of, of vaccination is going to, the daily rate is going down. And I guess there are some people who have decided they're not going to take the second shot because they're scared of the side effects. And Honestly, the side effects, they kind of sucked, but I just, I took a little time off, which sometimes we just need to do. Yeah, that's kind of the conundrum about vaccines is people look at the short-term side effects and don't look at the long-term benefits of it, which is kind of a good analogy for climate change, I guess. Well, it is. And I was going to use this to segue in because as you know from your research on climate change and the misinformation surrounding climate change, we're seeing a little of that same misinformation around the vaccines and around COVID itself. And so I'm very curious, like how you got started in this, let's dig into the disinformation business as it, as it relates to climate change. 
It actually began with having arguments with my father-in-law about climate change. Mm-hmm. So, like, we all have a cranky uncle in our family, right? Like, mm-hmm. mine was, well, I've, I've a number of them. My father, my father-in-law, my uncle, <laughs> basically any male in the older generation. And uh, he would, um, it was at a lunch, and he started throwing these arguments on why he didn't think climate change was real or human caused. And I went away afterwards and started researching his arguments and realized that there was just no science behind it. And so like any competitive son-in-law who wants to win an argument with his father-in-law, I started researching, started preparing for the next- I love this. (laughs) So you don't do things like halfway, right? You were like, I'm not only am I going to study this, I'm going to create an app and there's going to be a website and. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously the, I w- wasn't quite that, that took a while for all that to develop, but, but yeah, certainly I'm a super nerd and, and probably most people don't prepare for a family to get together by building a database of possible arguments that your father-in-law might, <laughs> might present. Uh, but eventually I realized that other people might, find this a useful resource as well. And that's when I launched Skeptical Science. Okay, so Skeptical Science. I have to tell you my personal first introduction to Skeptical Science came in 2008. And I was on working on the Hill, five bucks to my producer, because every time I say that, I get to put money into the Chelsea referenced working on the Hill jar. And it was my best friend's 40th birthday. And she had this very generous gift certificate at a nice restaurant in Alexandria, Virginia. And so we went and we ran into a client of hers and his wife and they said, oh, you know, have an after dinner drink with us. So we have this glorious dinner. Then we retreat to the bar. We're having an after dinner drink. They asked me what I do. I work for Senator John Warner. I am his climate change advisor. And the husband kind of scoffs, right? Like climate change, that isn't real. And I thought he was joking. And so I laugh and he's like, no, I'm serious. And, and at that point, you know, I was like well-versed in, in sort of the basic arguments that I had been hearing, but what he threw at me was something I'd never heard of before, which was, well, Jupiter's warming. So all the planets are warming. And I had no response to that, right? Plus I, you know, it was late in the evening. I had this glorious dinner. This was not the conversation I was expecting to have. So I got to work the next day and there was um, an AAAS, is that the organization? The science, there was a scientist, Alex Barron, working for Senator Lieberman. And I went to Alex, my resident science expert nerd. And I said, Alex, I heard this crazy excuse the other night got in this bar fight essentially in this nice restaurant in alexandria with this guy and this was what he said he's like oh you need skeptical science on your phone because it has every myth you've ever imagined and you can look it up and you can find the basic response or the intermediate response and i was hooked in that moment so if i were to ever see this guy again i would now know what to tell him based on your research but i just loved this concept because of course you know, I feel like we're in this weird situation with climate change, right? Where people can just say something to counter, like we have to have a, a dissertation basically to explain why somebody's wrong, but they're allowed to just say say something that's wrong and that in- misinformation spreads and other people share it. And it's much harder to undo that than it is for them to just let the misinformations fly. A, a myth can just be a simple 
false statement and something like Jupiter's warming, therefore it must be natural. Who comes you know? up with that though? Who like do, does the research that you do ever kind of look into the origin of some of these myths? Uh, no, we haven't really done that yet. Actually, it's something I'd be really interested in doing. But um, and we have been uh, spending the last few years training a machine to automatically detect and categorize misinformation. And my hope is that eventually, what we can do is use that to track how far back these myths go and when do they originally start. It might be a way of kind of trying to construct the history of specific myths. Uh, that's that's a way has, down the future. We've seen a history in the um, in the excuses that lawmakers use, right? Like they used to say climate change isn't happening and then it was, it's happening, but it's always been happening. You know, the climate's always been changing or... Yes, climate change is happening, but we can't destroy the economy to fix it. So we've sort of seen this evolution in the word no, right? The word no to acting. But what I'm wondering is if you've seen an evolution in sort of what the most, for the lack of a better word, popular myths are for why people won't believe in climate change. And I hate that believe in climate change. It's there whether you believe in it or not. But why people reject the science, I guess, is a better way to say that. Yeah, the, the terminology I try to use, although it's clunky, is accept the reality of climate change. I like um, <laughs> I, I mean, in my field, though, like we do, you know, we research psychology and cognitive science. So belief is an appropriate word technically, but yeah, you don't <laughs> believe science, you accept the evidence. Right. But um, yeah, to answer your question, uh, the, that's the beauty of this machine learning research. It enabled us to create a 20 year history of climate misinformation. And the two patterns that really jump out is firstly, we found that um, misinformation that is not so much about the science, but about attacking scientists and undermining the credibility of science. That's the biggest category of climate misinformation. Uh, And those arguments about uh, it's not real, it's not us, it's not bad. Those are actually a minor part of climate misinformation, which surprised me. Like, doing sceptical science, debunking those science myths, those loomed large to me. But it turns out that in the landscape of climate misinformation, attacks on climate science and just trying to undermine public trust is is a much bigger category of misinformation. What does that feel like then as somebody who has dedicated your life to science and to feel like you're at the heart of of the attacks like that? does that feel discouraging or does it make you kind of more determined to get the truth out there? Yeah, I guess it, it raises the stakes because you realize that this isn't about a, it's not, it's not a marketplace of ideas. It's not about, well, you have your explanation of the world and we're trying to put forward our alternative explanation. They're not trying to push forward a coherent explanation of what's happening to our climate. They're just trying to erode trust. Um, and all of it is just like every climate myth always ends up at the same destination, which is therefore we shouldn't do anything about climate change. It's about delaying action. Uh, And so that means that like a lot of it is bad faith attacks on climate science. It's, it's, uh, and being aware of that kind of going into the, the, the controversies, like public controversies, not scientific controversies, 
knowing that it's it's not about good faith scientific debate, but about trying to delay climate action, I think it's important to recognize that. Have you changed your father-in-law's mind? Um, I, no. No! <laughs> I, I learned I that with some people, people whose um, beliefs aren't based on evidence, it's mm-hmm. hard to persuade them with evidence. Yeah. But on the positive side, like I also had arguments with my own father and he did change his mind. Um, I'm not sure that it was necessarily a, a, a killer argument or bit of evidence that I that I presented. It was probably more over time having patient conversations with him, and then um, ironically, nothing to do with me. More that he got solar panels on his roof and and started actually <laughs> not having to pay electric bills. He actually got checks from the electric company uh, every time the bill arrived. Uh, and I think that he, his behaving um, more environmentally friendly led to a change in his his beliefs. Usually it goes in the other direction, but in, it can go in either direction. Well, I think that's really interesting and important thing for our listeners, especially those who have that cranky uncle. And I want to get to cranky uncle in a second here. Um, but I, you know, we have a a young man who is part of our volunteer, super volunteer team. And he was one of our first podcast guests actually last year. And he is a freshman in college. When he was in high school, he and his dad would have these political conversations every day and his dad would pick him up from school and his dad did not accept the science of climate change. And at first, actually, neither did our our friend, our eco-right friend. And he started to to delve into the data as a way to debate his friends who were saying, oh, yes, climate change is the biggest crisis of our generation. And he wanted to kind of have a little, you know, an an informed debate with them and then was like, oh, wait, I was wrong. (laughs) So then he went back and he had these like conversations over time with his dad and changed his dad's mind. And they came on the podcast and they just have a really beautiful story where the dad, you know, wasn't didn't shut him down. He said at first, you know, I listened a little more skeptically, but over time he began to see um, what his son was saying and and was persuaded. Now, talk about Cranky Uncle, because I, first of all, I think that's a, a great name for a campaign. We talk about the Cranky Uncle all the time. And, you know, no offense to uncles. If you have a beloved uncle listener, we probably don't mean your uncle, but there's always that cranky person in your family or in your friend group or your life that you're tangentially, you know, need to be around, especially back um, or again, as we all get vaccinated and start to have social events again, you may encounter your cranky uncle. Um, what was what is this effort that you're undertaking, the cranky uncle effort? So I've been um, focused with my research on what are the most effective ways to counter misinformation. And increasingly, the the data, my experiments, have been pointing me towards critical thinking and building resilience against misinformation. And the way you do that is by explaining the different techniques used to mislead and deceive us. Um, I use the acronym FLEC as a way of summarising the five techniques of science denial. Fake experts, logical fallacies, impossible expectations, cherry picking, and conspiracy theories. But remembering all those techniques and trying to explain them and get people internalizing them, uh, and you know, strongly enough that they can recognize them out in the wild, in the real world, is really challenging from a communication and education point of view. So I've been struggling with well, how do you 
inoculate people, explain the techniques of denial in a way that's engaging and that sticks with them. And eventually I happened upon the technique of games. Using games are a really powerful way of presenting content to people in a way that's engaging and interactive. Uh, but more, most importantly with games, you can also get people practicing critical thinking. So the way that um, I've structured the Cranky Uncle game is it, it um, has people, it shows them misinformation and they have to identify the different misleading technique and do it over and over and over again. And each time you get it right, you collect points, you get cranky points, your, your character gets crankier and crankier. Uh, and so it's all those gameplay elements of collecting points and leveling up and seeing the uncle's face get angrier and redder and steam starts <laughs> coming out of his ears, using all those kind of sort of humour and incentives to motivate people to keep playing. And the more they play, the more resilient they become against misinformation. That's interesting because my my younger son, his freshman year in high school, he had an English teacher who found books after she had been, you know, a gamer. And she's telling us this right back to school night. And she was probably like 23 or 24 about how she was had been a big gamer. And then that led and she liked the, the store, the games that had stories. And so that kind of led into a love of English and books. And she used gaming to get her English students engaged in in the readings that they had to do and the writing they had to do. So I, I think you're onto something, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, you know, it, it almost, not that it's easier, but it feels different from saying, well, you're wrong about Jupiter because here's what's really happening, right? If you're kind of getting at why somebody has believes that mistruth and undoing that in a way it, it feels more like less like you're challenging the person's information that they're sharing right well i guess there are two ways you can fact check or or push back against misinformation using the facts or using logic Uh, and most fact checks most debunkings do use the facts and 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 explain the science so and, and which is great like it's it's certainly an ideal way to to you know the more we can explain science to people the better but the, I guess a limitation of that approach is um, it's limited to specific myths. If I want to debunk the Jupiter myth, I have to explain um, solar activity and how Jupiter internally heats itself because it's so big and what's happening on other planets and what's happening on Jupiter's climate. Uh, you know, it's a lot of information and, and nuanced science to have to explain. But if you um, just explain the rhetorical techniques used in misinformation that uh, is generalizable. Once people understand a technique in one area, they can see that technique in multiple areas. I found that debunking misinformation uh, used by the tobacco industry to cast doubt on the health risks of smoking also inoculated people against the same techniques used in climate misinformation. And, and then I found with the game, which is focused on climate misinformation, I found that when they play the game, that inoculates them against anti-vax misinformation. So, um, so critical thinking is like a universal vaccine against misinformation. So is Cranky Uncle also an app then? The game is also an app? Yeah, so it, it originally came out as an, an iPhone app and then an Android app. 
um, it, it came out first as an iPhone app and, and that got all the Android users really angry. <laughs> we actually <laughs> submitted them to both stores at the same time. It just took Google a lot longer to process but then we afterwards we also listed it as a browser game as well. So the idea being, uh, we want as many people to have access to it as possible. So listeners, you can find John's work at Skeptical Science and at Cranky Uncle. And is there any other place you would direct our listeners if they wanted to delve more into your your research, maybe into the the nuts and bolts of your research? Yeah, so crankyuncle.com is where firstly the game is mm-hmm. uh, and also the Cranky Uncle book. Uh, but also I just I just post on there regularly about critical thinking, about my research, um, about educational resources for using the game to teach critical thinking in the classroom um, and just to post a lot of cartoons. I love it. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. And listeners, I'll drop links in our show notes to um, Cranky Uncle and Skeptical Science. And John, it's been real fun to talk to you. And I could listen to you with your beautiful accent all day. (laughs) (laughs) Great to talk to you, Chelsea. Thanks. Welcome back into this episode of the EcoRight Speaks podcast. I am your producer, Bryce Atkinson. I want to take you back to last Friday. We've hosted several field trips in the past with local lawmakers, state and federal, from around the country. We haven't done one since last fall due to the COVID-19 pandemic uh, when we teamed up with outgoing State House member Gary Clary from right here in South Carolina uh, to join us along with uh, several of his State House colleagues, Republican colleagues, uh, to see the local impacts of climate change in the local districts. And that's why we've and how we set up these local field trips for local conservatives to see those kind of impacts right there in their districts. And last Friday, we teamed up with Audubon, South Carolina's uh, Nolan Schillerstrom, Justin Stokes, and we hosted first-term Congresswoman Nancy Mace, who represents the 1st Congressional District of South Carolina, on a field trip to see the firsthand impacts of sea level rise on the South Carolina coast. And the trip began at Coastal Expeditions in Mount Pleasant, where owner Chris Crawley uh, captained our 12-person boat, and we went out onto the water where he explained the terrain from Shim Creek right there in Mount Pleasant out to Crab Bank Island, which sits at the mouth of Shim Creek adjacent to the channel in the Charleston Harbor. Once almost 40 acres with high ground for nesting birds, Crab Bank is no longer a rookery due to sea level rise and erosion. Uh, you know, High tide, you can see maybe half an acre is what Chris explained to us at the very highest of tides. Uh, but Nancy Mace, a native of the Low Country, first female graduate of the Siddle, she's made conservation a centerpiece of her first year in office. And thanks to her leadership, a recent compromise was struck by several of the stakeholders, including Audubon, South Carolina, to help build Crab Bank up once, once again using dread spoil from the deepening of the Charleston Harbor that will allow migratory birds to return to Crab Bank and also you know, protect the shoreline. Crab Bank sediment acts as a natural buffer in protecting that shoreline against offshore winds, waves, and storm impacts. Existing coastal structures are at even greater risk now due to sea level rise, including NOAA measures that sea level rise at 10 inches since 1950 alone. That sea level rise also sends saltwater inland drowning critical freshwater wetlands, damaging important commercial fisheries, and creating forests of dead trees. But we had a great morning out on the water uh, there on the coast of Mount Pleasant in Charleston, South Carolina, seeing 
the sea level rise impacts, and thanks to the leadership of, of Nolan Schillerstrom from Audubon, South Carolina, and, and Chris Crawley again from Coastal Expeditions. And afterwards, I asked Nancy Mace what she learned. I asked the congresswoman you know, what she saw and what she took away from the morning. Here's what she had to say. I learned so much on uh, this uh, boat ride expedition that we did this morning from Shim Creek to the Crab Bank to Morris Island. And the first environmental issue that we tackled in my first 100 days in office was the Crab Bank one. And really one of the things that I've learned so far after being sworn is sometimes it's a lack of communication between different stakeholders and entities and trying to find ways to work together. And we brought all of the stakeholders together in in a room and, and we got a deal done and uh, we're really excited about that but then to go see crab bank and see not only the environmental impact you know when when uh, it's high tide it's almost completely underwater but what the benefits will be mutually beneficial for the environment the community the waterways with shim creek and everything there but be able to physically see that and what the opportunities are and the future for a rookery for our bird wildlife and habitat is pretty amazing it's extraordinary we got it done and it's really exciting to to really witness that firsthand absolutely you know oh it's extremely important i mean when you look at south carolina particularly along the coast in charleston it's 10 billion dollar the tourism industry is a 10 billion dollar industry and one of the, the reasons why we have such a strong tourism industry is because of our environment. We have a beautiful outdoor outdoors. We have live oak trees. We have pristine beaches, clean waterways, beautiful birds, you name it, uh, sea turtles. It, they're all here. And it's really, uh, for us, in economic development, The main one of the main drivers is the environment. And we want to make sure we protect it and we... Uh, we make sure that uh, that beauty will remain for generations to come. All right. You heard from Congresswoman Nancy Mace right there. I'd like to thank a couple people that made the trip possible. I'd like to thank Nolan Schillerstrom from Audubon, South Carolina, who was instrumental in, in help getting everything set up and the planning on the front end. And also Chris Crawley, the uh, founder and our boat captain from Coastal Expeditions uh, there on Shim Creek in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. A big, big thank you to both of them and also obviously to Congresswoman Nancy Mace herself for joining us along with several members of her staff. Great morning out on the water and seeing the local effects of sea level rise along the coast of beautiful South Carolina. All right, I want to thank everybody again for tuning in. Make sure that you download, listen, uh, and subscribe. Subscribing is key. iTunes, uh, Stitcher, many different ways you can listen to us. Spotify, Spotify, if you are an Android user, Spotify is a great way to subscribe and listen to us. Certainly, if you have an iPhone, uh, the Apple Podcasts, iTunes app, all you got to do is search eco right speaks it is that easy hit subscribe on your phone tablet and you will have a new episode delivered right to your smartphone or device every single tuesday uh, when we debut a new episode so we will be back and do this again next week obviously uh, chelsea henderson will be back with me to help me wrap it up Um, I would like to give a shout out to several new members before we get out the door this week as we do every week. ENF in Washington, Kim C in Arkansas, Russ S in Virginia, Kendall M in Florida, and Deborah C in Oklahoma. You can join us at republicn.org forward slash join. It takes all of seconds and we need you, especially if you are a conservative. We need you standing with us. So, 
That'll do it for this week's episode. Once again, thanks to John Cook for joining Chelsea there earlier in the segment. And again, thanks to Nancy Mace, staff, and everybody that played a great and big vital role in our field trip last Friday down on the coast of South Carolina in Mount Pleasant. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening. We will see you again next week on another episode of the Eco Right Speaks podcast. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader. 